This is Shalana. Jordan's there. It's there. Jordan for Portugal can equalise with 16 minutes to go. Prefere meter para João Pinto, mete sobre a direita para Xalana, Xalana vai fazer o cruzamento, vai fazer a pinta, tenta ao meio, puxa, vai para a Liga de Fundo, muda de pé, dá para o Jordão, sozinho, remata, golo! Hello and welcome to 1984. <laughs> Not really, it's 2021. <laughs> and we're actually approaching a European Championships title, Euro 2020. In the run-up to the European Championships, we decided to dig into the, the archives or archives, or if Philippe wants to give the the really perfect pronunciation in Portuguese. Os arquivos. Oh, so smooth, so smooth. The um, This is something that we wanted to, we spoke about doing for a while and some context and a bit of background to the European Championships that Asunasao, Portugal have been at uh, since uh, the Federation was founded. And we decided really to do an episode each devoted to each European Championship. So seven European Championships, seven episodes it won't be too long, but they'll sort of just dive into the history. This is perfect for someone who has maybe not too, is maybe not too familiar with the, the European Championships, or maybe not too familiar with the sort of the heritage and the history of the Portuguese national team. A lot of new eyes, I think, have been cast upon Asilasau because of recent successes and lots of players that are coming through. And um, what's happening with the under twenty ones at the minute? The fact Portugal are. European champions at the moment so the attention is at an all-time high in my opinion and so a lot of people uh, will be looking to maybe know a little bit more about the Portuguese national team before they were you know renowned for for winning titles it's only been the last couple of years faced with the conquest of of the European Championship followed up by the UEFA Nations League Um, and obviously we're now seeing success sort of at youth levels and the senior team are in a really healthy position. So if this sounds like something you're interested in and um, you you want to stay for this episode and also for the rest of the journey, then we're happy to have you. Um, if maybe going into the archives isn't something that you'd be interested in, there's lots of episodes uh, on our other podcasts, our Proximo Jornada Meets, and we've also got the Portuguese Football Show, which is retaining uh, for the new season and also for some European Championship specials during the Euros, where myself and Philippe will be wrapping up some games and, and giving some quick 10-15 minute um, sort of answers and answering any questions and just talking about the football we've witnessed that particular day. So that was just a brief overview and an introduction to today's episode and the episodes in the future. As I say, today we're transported to 1984, to a time where myself and Philippe weren't even born, if I'm correct, Philippe. (laughs) I think you're... He's the only one that was not born, to be fair. (laughs) Okay, okay. So what year was you born in, just to give the the audience some context? So you were born in 92 and I was born in 95. So not too much difference between us, but... such a boring kid. You were born in a year without any football. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, September 95. Um, so this is an interesting one, first and foremost, because we will have listeners who um, we see from the demographics that it's different age groups and there's listeners who listen who, uh, who will remember 1984 or who will have been born, you know, sort of around that time. For myself and Philippe, it was interesting to sort of, we knew the history, but to go back and actually catch footage of the games and really delve deep into uh, the the actual European Championships itself. And before I get into it, I actually want to give uh, a shout out to Tom Cundit, who is over there doing great work in Portugal because his book, The 13th Chapter, um, which the subtitle to the book is actually from, uh, from Eusebio to Ronaldo, Portugal's 50-year journey from football minnows to European champions. That actually documents uh, the sort of World Cups and the European Championships Portugal have been at. Using this as a, as a source throughout the sort of planning and preparation for the podcast was amazing because Tom's so knowledgeable and as are the other writers on there, Nathan Motts and also Simon Curtis. So brilliant that there's, um, there's some history that's been documented in the English language. So that was just the um, a little plug for Tom because I've really enjoyed sort of rereading the book for the preparation of this episode. And on for Shalana. Gomez waiting in the centre. Shalana's cross. Jordao's hanging at the back post. Oh, it's there! Jordao again! 2-1 to Portugal. So... In a bit about the history, was the first time that obviously Portuguese uh, Portugal qualified for the Euros. It was eighteen years after the only time that Portugal were in a in a, in a big tournament. When uh, in sixty six they went to the World Cup in England, it was a funny tournament as well because it was the first time there was eight teams involved. So the first time we went actually had a, a semi finals and then the final. Uh, so that was a, a big difference and it allowed Portugal a bit more room to qualify. Just a funny little fact, the team was called Os Patricios. Why? I have I have no idea, but that's <laughs> what they were called at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, to, to qualify, Portugal was in a group with, uh, obviously there was Portugal, Soviet Union, which was the big favourites, Poland and, and Finland. And we topped the group by one point. Uh, and the, the big game was the last one against Sovietic Union, where the goal from Jordão in the penalty took um, took them to the to the first Euros in France. Yeah. So as you say, this is consecutive failures uh, from the the six consecutive sort of failures to qualify from 1960 um, to 1980. And Philippe, as you say, the, it was a sort of all-or-nothing game. Rui Jordao's goal won it, uh, the 1-0. But the expectations, um, they weren't high, to, to say the least. And you only have to look at sort of the press around that time. And again, there's some really great documents online that you can go back and, and sort of look at the um, what the press was saying. It, it didn't look... As if the nation had had high hopes, even though they'd managed to qualify for the first European Championships. In fact, something else, um, another funny fact, is that during the tournament, well, just before the tournament started, um, the federation were actually already looking towards the qualification for the World Cup, uh, which would take place two years later, and they were seeing the 1984 as something sort of almost to just get it out of the way. They didn't have any expectation to really go far in the tournament. And um, that was one of the big things was that they 
the federation were being accused of actually looking towards looking past the nineteen eighty four European Championships and setting their goals on a on a much higher target. And the um, that's something that a lot of people disagreed with. They thought you know you should be able to you've qualified now focus on on actually performing. So it didn't look like it was going to be plain sailing as it as it never is here with Portugal. Um, they actually during the qualifying phase they brought in uh, Otto Gloria. That might be a name that's familiar to a lot of the older Portuguese supporters because it was actually the manager who, as Philippe mentioned before, um, was in charge of Portugal during the 1966 World Cup, so their previous um, only involvement at a major tournament. And it looked like he would be in place throughout the qualification and then into the tournament. But again, tumultuous here within the Portuguese camp and he ended up um, sort of being uh, sort of leaving his position and they brought in this is a really strange thing which you wouldn't really see today um, they actually I think they were dubbed at the time o Mister do Quatro Cabezas so it was the <laughs> The 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 Mister with the with four heads. Obviously, in Portugal, they refer to the the head coach or the manager as the Mister. But in this case, it was a four headed monster. Um, so you had Jose Augusto, Tony, uh, Antonio Moraes, and Fernando Cabrita. They tried to actually balance it out because, in terms of the the clubite, the clubismo was as it is now. It was a really, really prevalent issue back then. And the Federation was still trying to battle with the, the club supporters around the country in terms of trying to avoid bias and make sure that everything was was fair and equal. So uh, Augusto was known for his time at Benfica, as was Tony. Uh, Antonio Moraes was FC Porto. And then Fernando Cabrita, who was sort of, he worked down in, in Algarve, he worked all over Portugal, and he also had a spell at Benfica. But he was sort of seen as... As the head guy, he was, um, although they said that all four would have sort of equal power, it wasn't really to be that way. And and that was another big point in, in the news and in the press beforehand is that if these four managers have, diff- have four different sort of views on the game and four different opinions, that's going to maybe lead to more clashing. And at this time... Um, there was a lot of clashing going on. Um, and yeah. Philippe, you'll come in with some some context for, for what was happening uh, in terms yes. of on cl- club level. So, yeah, this this uh, qualification was obviously a, a bit of a oasis because it's been such a long time since Portugal actually qualified. But if you look at what was happening the years before, you can see that there was obviously work being done. Not in the Slesson, but in the club. So it was the second season of uh, Eriksson, Sven Goran Eriksson. <laughs> People in England uh, <laughs> know him. <laughs> uh, but he actually was his first time in in, um, in Portugal with Benfica, and they just won the title twice in a row. And Eriksson at the time, in the early 80s, was um, he revolutionized the, the football in Portugal. Uh, so that was one big factor that made all these players uh, coming to the Slesson with a different mindset. Befica in 82-83 was in the final of the UEFA Cup that they lost against Anderlecht. And then in the year of the Euro, so 83-84, Portugal went to the final of the, the Cup Winners' Cup that doesn't exist anymore, where they lost against Juventus of Platini. So you see that even in Europe, the, the Portuguese clubs were going quite fast, especially Benfica and, and Porto. Uh, 
And then about what you said about the rivalry, it was very, very intense. And uh, you can see in the, in the plays that he took, he took nine plays from Porto, eight from Benfica, and then after they just one play from Sporting, Portimonense and, and Stubo. So it was a, a big, big clan of Porto players and Benfica players. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there was, there was a lot of uh, problems in the 80s. And, and even if you look after in 86 in the World Cup, where Portugal qualified, it was uh, a nightmare as well with, with problems between the federation and the players in terms of, of how mm -hmm. much money they would give actually to the players. <laughs> Salty affair. Yes. Uh, that was <laughs> the the problems were were sort of brewing there, and, and as you say, the the uh, something really brilliant from the book that I mentioned before. T Tom Cundit actually writes, um, oh yeah, under the near telepathic understanding the players had with each other on the pitch and the situation of it, where clicks existed and hardly was spoken between say hardly a word was spoken between certain teammates. So deep had the rift became between all sides that the players from Porto, Benfica and Sporting to a large extent copied that of the administrators in having no informal relationships with each other once a match had finished. This was conveniently forgotten for the 90 minutes spent on the pitch where teamwork and mutual understanding suddenly took over. For even the simplest thinking, this approach must have been do seemed doomed to failure, but the FPF uh, refused to accept this the obvious and took no action. So as you say there, Philippe, it was almost like the players had and we've saw this with other sort of nations in in recent times, being from England and, and actually watching what was going on with the English uh, football uh, national team. Is that something that a lot of the players in two thousand and four and two thousand and six at England were accused of is sort of the camps were so um, were so bitter between each other. It's like the players who play for Chelsea and Liverpool, Manchester United, like the big clubs at the time, that the players sort of didn't speak to each other or communicate off the pitch and, and that may have hindered them on the pitch. Obviously, we know the real reason why they didn't win and it was because they came up against Portugal on both occasions. <laughs> and um, and yeah, 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 the Portuguese don't give up. So um, that was just a nice little a nice little cheap shot. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and, and just before we move on to the actual tournament itself, the it seemed like the whole club thing had actually came to a head when um before one of the games uh, because both Benfica and Sporting were it, they were both in European quarterfinals at that time when the matches were play were being played. Eleven players dropped out because of the club. And can you imagine that now? So in between playing club games the international games were taking place sort of after. So now the way you'd have an international break sort of separated away from the club games. And even now we see clubs, you know, unhappy if players that are maybe jaded, need a little bit of a rest, they end up going on international duty and, and get a knock. But 11 different players dropped out. There were six players from Benfica who didn't travel, uh, three from uh, Sporting didn't travel, and two for Porto who didn't travel. And then it was shortly after that that Otto Gloria left and in came the coaching committee. So it, it seemed like even at that point, some of those players eventually uh, came back into the side and, and, and travelled for the championships, obviously. But it was almost you no know, playing playing for the club at this, you know, in these European games that actually going on international breaks wasn't the most important thing. And maybe that sort of fed into why Portugal hadn't really done too well. Because I think if you fast forward to 2016, I think one of the big things, Philippe, and I'm sure you'll agree, 
um, in terms of why that Portugal team was so successful was just the cohesion. The team seemed like it, it, it. No matter what was happening in the stands or what was happening with sort of when you talk about Primeira Liga, whether it's Sporting Benfica, Porto Braga, whoever it may be, when those players were on the pitch, they were all fighting for each other. They were all there for each other, and you could see um, that that sort of feeds into the team. They 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 want to win. They want to die for each other when they're on the pitch, and uh, it seemed like sort of in the early days with the federation. They played well during during the ninety minutes, but I don't think you can really achieve anything if you haven't got that sort of unity in place. Yeah, yeah. there was there was as well a lack of organization in general that mm-hmm. that really made Portugal wait all this time to qualify again. And even after, if you look after, of course we're gonna speak in the in the next episode, but then from this one to the next one after is not is twelve years again. So it's a long time um to to go back into a, a year or so. But 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 yeah, it's it was it was it was strange. It was as well a beginning of uh, port with uh, with Pinta Costa's president, uh, with uh, Pedro mm-hmm. as a as a manager as well. With they and they feed themselves into make a a war between north and south uh, almost, mm-hmm. and they obviously yeah. took uh, to the to the national team as well. There's a lot of stories. That uh, Futre tells, so Futre was not in this uh, 84, but he was in the 86 after, where mm. uh, in the bus there would be Porto players in the back, uh, Befica players at the front, and then everyone else in the middle, they wouldn't mix at all. So mm. it's crazy to think that happening now. You, you don't imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they, they, um, they try to rectify those issues, but back, back, in, uh, back in those days, it was almost, it was sort of like a, it was like an unspoken, an unspoken so No one really dared to, to challenge it because that was just the way things were done. And obviously you only have to look through history, certain things happen and we look at it now and think, well, how did that happen? Why did that happen for so long? But when you're sort of in the moment, it's just one of those things. Yeah, we, we don't speak about it. That's just the way things are. And um, yeah, it was quite clear that that had to change. Now, as we were, were mentioning before, um, they Portugal managed to to actually qualify and then into the tournament proper. You you has a really tough group. So West Germany were actually the defending um, European champions from the previous tournament, and in their sort of uh, in their time between the two European championships, there was a World Cup. Uh, in 1982, just two years before, they actually reached the final of that as well. So, um, yeah, defending European Championships, World Cup finalists, um, you could say, and, you know, the, two years after that, that they were sort of maybe coming to the end of the cycle, but it's still a very, very tough team. Then Spain, always a tough for footballer nation. And then when you actually um, factor in the fact that it's the Iberian uh, derby and everything that goes with that, um, very very tough opponents there as well, and then Romania and uh, Romania was sort of it was they had players of of great quality. They actually had a young uh, Haji who was in the team at the time. Um, I think it may have been his first tournament. I'm not too sure. Uh, so they again they had players to to watch out for, and then going into the tournament, it was almost sort of like, as you say, the poor organisation going into it. Um, the fact that they almost sort of surprised themselves by qualifying. You think six consecutive failures to qualify for, for the tournament. Um, when you actually do make it, you know, one in seven, there's an element of surprise. Uh, and then you've sort of get adjust to that and get ready for that. 
to start with the, the base team in the in the four games Portugal played, there was a few changes from game to game, but it was Bento in goal, which is a legend at Benfica. Uh, a very small goalkeeper, actually. He's a 173 or 174 centimetres, which is crazy to think in these days a, a keeper so small, but he was very agile. He was a very good goalkeeper. Then they play all, uh, always in the back four, would be João Pinto, Álvaro Magalhães, Eurico and Lima. In the midfield, it would be with Jaime Pacheco, which after became a, a legend at Boa Vista as well to, to for bring them the title. Antonio mm-hmm. Souza, Frasco, Carlos Manuel, and then the the shining star of this team, which was uh, Shalana, which mm-hmm. is an unbelievable uh, football player, probably top three in the, in the whole history of, of Portugal. And then the striker, Jordão, which was what is a legend at, at Sporting as well. Then, they had, like you said, the first game was West Germany. Um, it was <laughs> my notes and from watching a, a bit of uh, of um, notes from, from the time, there was a lot of supporters, Portuguese supporters in the stadium because obviously there was a big Portuguese yeah. community in, mm-hmm. in, in France. Um, Portugal starts really well the game with, with good chances. And I think because everyone was expecting to be heavily beaten by West Germany, I think it was after this game that the other team started looking at Portugal and thinking, okay, it might not be as, as easy as, um, as especially Germany and, and Spain thought uh, the games against Portugal w- would be. And just to just to come back there, Philippe, because the, I actually had it in my notes about the... Um, yeah, in terms of the, the game itself, I think a lot of people, as you say, were surprised. Uh, Abola actually called... They, they called it um, footballzinho. As in this this little football, which um, tight, you know, passing, uh, intricate movements, one twos, positioning, you know, off the ball, uh, playing this really nice football, uh, but trying to make it effective as well. And uh, as you say, I think that that game, that sort of opening point, you know, this is the team who's just been to the World Cup final, who are the defending champions. And um, it just didn't go to plan for for Germany. And even though you know we look back now and think you know a nil nil if that was Portugal today, um, you know want to obviously go out and win every single game. But that was you know that was still a, a top draw result. Couldn't make the breakthrough and actually get you know the the win. But what a good way to start the tournament off. As you say someone an opponent that. You're not really expecting too much from, and then going into the Spain game, it was it was pretty much again tried to stick to their sort of the way that they play, and again uh, another draw. So that game actually finished one-one. Uh, Antonio Sousa was the was the goal scorer that day, and um, say walked away with another draw. It wasn't until the um, third game which um, we'll move on to in a second. but So as I say, b- between just three days between the games, um, two draws. So at the, at this point, it's looking kind of promising because you're thinking if they can get a victory against uh, Romania, then you know, you're in a good position. Three games in, one win, two draws and unbeaten. Uh, and uh, you know a big side are going to be going out of the tournament. Uh, a side like West Germany, who just the reputation coming into it was so strong. Um, so it felt like as the games were going on and from what I've read in, in the press, the country was starting to actually have a bit of hope. They yeah. were starting to have um you know, the they these these players, they were the you know, they were the they were the hopes. They were like, Oh my word, we might actually not only have we qualified for the tournament, but we've managed to get a good result against our, you know, Iberian neighbours and um, you know, a side that you do not want to lose to in Spain. They've had an opening day draw with 
you know, the world, well, world, uh, European Championship, World Cup runners up. So it looked like it was in a good position going into the Romania game. Uh, yeah. Um, just one thing that we forgot to mention in the beginning, but if someone wants to go back and check the highlights or, or parts of, of the games and they get a bit um, shocked with the numbers, uh, because, for instance, you have Shalan with number four, Jordan, which was a strike of the number three. That they they didn't buy luck, <laughs> so <laughs> so so they basically just took kind of a hat to know which numbers they would they would be on on the shot. But it's a bit odd now because <laughs> going back and watching and seeing the best players of Portugal with uh, with numbers on the, on the shot was was funny. Uh, but then he yeah, had the game against Romania. The the best player at this time in Romania was uh, Boloni, Las Boloni, which later went to Portugal to coach uh, to coach Sporting, and yeah, like you said, this game if after Portugal being able to survive and get a point from both Germany and, and Spain, um, Portuguese people look at this game thinking we have a chance. No one thought we would be able to come to the last game uh, and with hopes to qualify for the semi-finals. It didn't start very well because Shalana, uh, like I said, it was this probably the best player of the generation, got subbed off very early with 15 minutes, came in Diamantino, and then mm-hmm. the winning goal was close already from the end of the game after Portugal created a lot of good chances. Uh, it was uh, Nene, which came on with 20 minutes to go and, and scored a corner from uh, Antonio Souza, and then after that was a uh, solid last 10 minutes to being able to to take them to, to the semi-finals that no one would believe that Portugal were actually able to make it. I know, and the thing is, looking back now, obviously we'll move to the game that we'll probably cover in the most depth because it's a game that, even though it didn't end the way that sort of Portuguese people would 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 want it to have ended, it it, it was almost it was such a spectacle, especially for the neutral. Um, so as you say, going on to the semi-finals, um, going to to Marseille, going to the Velodrome, um, knowing that the support in there will be absolutely, you know, fervent. It would be crazy atmosphere and it was this is a game that you can actually get because some of the clips for the other games are, are, can be difficult to get hold of but the France game is the one that you'll find you can see all, all game yeah. I saw this um, game full yeah. on a, a few years ago I was still yeah. in Portugal but it was often on TV I remember yeah. watching this game on, on TV the likes of him RTP and yeah. like to show like stuff like that yeah you can you watch it I actually watched this game on I forget what the website's called um it's like football, football or football or something like that, and um, yeah, the full, the full ninety minutes. It was in the commentary was French, which which wasn't great, but um, my oh, friends yeah. needs a bit of work, but but um, yeah, no, it was it was you know it was, it was a brilliant game. Obviously, the result, um, but we'll mo- we'll move on to that. So this game it actually ended in in a three two defeat for Portugal, um, and it was. The guy, the man, the legend who actually ran out. I think he he won the he was the golden boot for the tournament as well. Um, Michel Platini, who yes, Platini just, was so good in this tournament. Just to, oh, to give people uh, some the context, why he played, he scored nine goals in this tournament. And think about it, there was three games in the group stage, semi final and final. So in five games, he scored nine goals. So yeah. far, the closest one. In all European championships, a play was Ronaldo, and he has nine goals. So Ronaldo played in 2004, 8, 12, 16. In all f- four of them, he scored nine goals in total. Platini in five games in one tournament scored nine goals. Unbelievable yeah. what this man was <laughs> playing this year. 
and, and this um, French national team was was so so good. To be fair, obviously yes. Portugal's very involved, and and we want to give the Portuguese side because that's uh, the the funny one for us. And Portugal was very close from beating uh, France in this game. But in the French national team, we had Platini, we had Luis Fernandes, Jean Tingana. Um, it's such a, <laughs> a good group of players in the, in the team that wanted to win uh, the the home in home soil as well. But it was it was an amazing game. Yeah, and Portugal actually took the lead in the game as well. In um, in extra time, Jordao got his second yeah. uh, second of the game to make it two one, and then uh, Domerk uh, got his second. Um, just five minutes to go, and then that man that we mentioned uh, at the front of this was yeah. uh, Michel Platini, hundred nineteenth minutes, sick in it. <laughs> yeah, and and their goal is so, is so first of all, yeah, Domerk or Domerk, my French accent is not very good. He has two goals for France in his all career. Both of them is scored in the semi-final <laughs> against <laughs> Portugal. Just, just to make it even more annoying. And then in the in the goal that Platini scores at the end, actually Portugal tries to counter quickly. So yeah. everyone is more or less thinking about already the penalties and Alvaro Magalhães, mm-hmm. which was the left back at the time. He tries to 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 counter quickly, and then he loses to Tigana, and Tigana creates something out of nothing in in the box, and he gets to Platini, which which he scores, but. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. To Tony, one of the players who was obviously part of the squad, um, and was um, yeah, as I said, at the European Championships, spoke after the um, spoke after the uh, after the the championships, and said the possibly if Portugal had, had tried to continue playing the same way that they had done throughout the tournament, so this football zinho, this little football, this trying to knit your passing together and keep the ball um, that he thinks it may it may have worked out better for them than than sort of changing the tactics but within games and when you're playing against you know a side a side like France and a player like Platini who just ran absolute riot in this tournament um you know it's 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 only natural that you try and go a little bit more defensive and as you say maybe counter attack with an eye on the uh, with an eye on penalties and get into the final which would have been you know Portugal's first ever major European final or even um, international final um, after the uh, semi-final defeat in '66 in the World Cup. So yeah, they were they were they were knocked out, but they went they went down and out. I actually feel like there was. I mean, you look back at it now, and then obviously you see what happened. You know, two years later. Um, it's easy behind side to say, well, obviously everything went, uh, went well. If anything, it all blew back up in two years' time. But at this point, with the with the championships ended, the expectation going into the tournament had well been exceeded. They managed to... The fact that they even made an epic out of this sort of game, this 3-2, after the results against you know a very impressive Spain and, and a West Germany side, they... Um, this was where I think people's attention was on Portugal and they could see this football that they tried to knit together and actually saw Portugal as a serious footballer nation because 66 World Cup, first time, obviously, you know, did very well. Um, you know, the likes of Eusebio was maybe the first time that, you know, people ever really took notice of Portugal. But then it was almost like the country disappeared into the shadows again for so many years. And it was like, oh, that was a once in a once in a lifetime opportunity to lift silverware. And then eighty four saw Portugal sort of come out of the shadows again and um try to make it a bit more consistent in terms of qualification. And as as you'll notice with the the next couple of episodes, 
the Portugal don't really get into the stride in terms of qualifying for tournaments after tournaments after tournaments until we see sort of the emergence of, of the golden generation. Our next episode after this is if I'm right, Philippe, is Euro 1996. Yes. So, um, so again, another another twelve years passes from '84 to '96. Yeah. In between that, we could probably do a podcast on on its own because we keep alluding to the World Cup that happened two years later. A lot of people might not know about that. Um, there's actually a really, really brilliant book. It's in Portuguese uh, on that. Deixem nos sonhar, which is let us dream. That is a, basically about the whole Saltillo affair, the the what was going on financially, what was going on with the players. Um, not not a, a beautiful moment to look back on, but a very interesting one at that. Um, and yeah, as I say, the this this European Championships was wasn't mine or Philippe's in, introduction into Portuguese football. As I say, it, it took place before we um, we were both we were both alive. But just being able to go back and see. Um, Portugal sort of captivate people outside of Portugal, and it feels like the players sort of setting aside the difference for the ninety minutes was was brilliant to go back and relive. But then, as I say, we really get into the glory years uh, as we will move through the podcast and uh, and end with with the big one, uh, twenty sixteen. But in terms of um, in terms of eighty four, Philippe, have you got any just finishing thoughts on this? Anything that sort of struck you about this tournament or to things me, that you didn't know? It's not just about this tournament, it's about what happened after. So between mm-hmm. 84 and 88, which was the next um, Euros, obviously we didn't qualify for that one, but we went to the World Cup, like you said, it didn't went very well, but we qualified to them. In 87, Porto wins the, the Champions League at the time. Um, we have Shalana going abroad for Bordeaux. And so it feels a lot that this generation deserved more big competitions. That's the feeling that I have. Is after mm-hmm. getting to a semi-final and having the players to experience abroad football and Porto being able to win such a big and important competition and obviously uh, Futre appearing as well. Mm-hmm. It feels like this team deserved uh, a bit more. Missing something to, to go that next step and, and thankfully, you know, the country ended up being able to go and do it. You sort of see the emergence because... We're talking in 84 now, and then obviously what happened in 86, and then it was in, you think it's only a couple of years after, in 1989 and in 1991, um, Portugal won the under, it was the Youth World Cup, yeah, uh, both in, in 89, yeah, or, but yeah, under 20, both at 89 and, and 91. So those sort of getting the hands on some silverware, and then that, that being that part of the generation that goes on. But that's another topic for another day. Um just a shout out to the current under twenty ones. While we're on the topic, they today uh, qualified for the semi final of the under twenty one European Championship. So as I say, they won it at under seventeen level, conquered that. Uh, won the under nineteen level, won that, and uh, now they're under twenty ones. They're into the semi final against Spain. So a massive, um, massive good luck to to those lads. But um, yeah, so this this has been the nineteen eighty four. Uh, sort of recap as I say a lot shorter than our usual episodes but hopefully just give you a bit of insight into into the history that that, that goes behind um, that sort of laid the foundation should I say for what we see today and we see the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo Bernardo Silva Pep you know all these players that are playing in Champions League finals and managers that are managing across you know the globe and Portugal are actually credited with Sort of the advancements of football in 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 recent in recent years, you know, namely through the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and Jose Mourinho, 
but these are the these competitions, these times, these failures at tournaments, these this fighting that all helped in a way to lay the foundation for what was to come. Because before you get to greatness, there's the work that goes in before it, and um, yeah, I think I'm going to really enjoy the next the next you know this next six episodes seeing get closer and I love the fact that the last episode is where we finally get there um, that's the one thing I, I like to finish yeah I hope you'll be back to join us and again this has been the 1984 European Championships see you in 96 <laughs> see you in 96 when I'm actually alive <laughs> <laughs> I'll be one years old for the uh, for the next episode <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you then oh.